I'm going to ask if you have your Bibles with you to open it up to uh, Romans chapter 3. While you're turning there, um, I'm going to ask you to pray with me in just a minute. I'm going to catch up on a, a detail first. Um, there's quite a number of individuals who are interested in the child dedication next weekend, and that is something that needs to be explained because uh, individuals who are new to the church that have children that want to participate in it are wondering, what is that? Um, here's what child dedication is. It's an individual parent saying, when they've got their smaller children, I, I want to bring my children before the church and ask the church not only to pray for me as a parent, but also I'm, I'm demonstrating, I'm putting my stake in the ground that this is a day that we recognize we dedicate our children to God. This is a significant thing. My mom did it for me as a child, and, and my mom was married to a non-believer. My dad was not a believer in Jesus Christ at that time. He became a believer when I was a teenager, but my mom determined as a woman who wanted to raise her children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and bring them to church that she said, I'm doing this regardless of whether or not my husband is part of this. So my mom brought us to church on a regular basis. I came to understand what that meant to be raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And, and this dedication of a child is something that you'll find consistent in the Bible. Hannah did it in the Old Testament with Samuel. It was done for Jesus when he was 12 years old. His parents brought him before the leaders and said, this is the dedication day for this child. So what we do when we do the dedication is something that it's very familiar in Scripture, and it's merely to recognize these parents need the encouragement of the church, but also the recognition to say, we're doing this. This is our desire to raise our children this way. Okay, I'd love to pray with you, and I need to fill you on on a detail before we pray together, before we jump into Romans 3, and here's the detail. Um, this last week, we found that one of our own within our church um, was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And his name is George, and George's wife is Sharon. And they would very much appreciate it if you would pray for them and, and, and lift them up in prayer. We're gonna do that in the midst of the service. We know that all things are possible with God, right church? All things are possible with God, so we will pray for George's healing if that's God's will. What we will specifically pray for is God's will to be accomplished. But when you have stage four colon cancer, it's kind of like a death sentence, right, from a human perspective. So the physicians are gonna do what they can do from their side of things, but it looks very grim. And, and George and Sharon would be the first to admit that, and, and George is young. He doesn't wanna give up his life at this point. He wants to fight. Um, but it may be that he only has a short amount of time on this earth. And so in light of that, we're going to lift our brother George up before the Lord, and uh, we're also going to pray that God would guide us in Romans 3. So let's pray together. Father, we declare as we come before your throne that nothing is impossible with you. And if you desire to defeat the cancer in George's life, you can do that. And if you desire to use it to draw people unto yourself or to bring glory to your name, or accomplish some purpose in George's life that we don't know about, we ask that you would do that. Father, we, we pray and place him in your hands as a church, a body of believers who want to support and encourage a, a brother in Christ that you would be near to him. Father, specifically, we ask that you would alleviate, alleviate the physical pain and discomfort that he's going through. And I pray that you would be a strength and a rock, a high tower, for Sharon 
as she's alongside her husband trying to encourage him. God, I thank you for the reminder it is to every one of us that our, our days are not promised to us and they are fleeting. And we are especially mindful of the need to redeem the day, to use it for your glory, for your purposes. Father, we pray now for Romans chapter 3 as we step into this, that you would teach us and guide us, that you would give us insight, that your Holy Spirit would go before us, and you would give us understanding. I pray that you would especially open up our hearts to be receptive to what your Holy Spirit wants to show us. We pray for this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Just before God handed down the Ten Commandments, he spoke to the children of Israel. In this picture of the setting, it's Mount Sinai. God's voice is coming thundering down the mountain. And he told Moses to gather the people near. Now, there's a few times in Scripture when you see God speaking audibly, out loud, so everybody can hear it. Sometimes they say it sounds just like thunder rolling across the plain. And then there's other times where he speaks and it's spoken through prophets and the prophets write down the things that God told them to relate. But what you see on the screen when you look now at Exodus 19.6 is you're going to see God's own words telling some people, a group of people whom he had set aside for his purposes. He told them this reminder, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here's who you are. Here's what you're going to do. And here's your purpose. You've been set apart for a specific purpose. Now later in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy, by the way, and when Moses wrote that book, he had a very similar reminder for the children of Israel. And he said it this way, Deuteronomy 14.2, You are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own possession. Now because of those passages, the Jews concluded over a long period of time Hey, being Jewish, that makes us good with God. We absolutely are good with Him because of our physical descent. Because of our, our forefather, Abraham, being born in this Jewish line, we're good with God. Now in Romans chapter 2, if you were here during the study, you, you saw that Paul absolutely dismantled that argument. He made it very, very clear to them that being a physical descendant of Abraham didn't automatically qualify them as a spiritual descendant. And this is essentially the way he summed it up. He said, if you don't have God's inward mark on your body, if you don't have God's stamp on your heart, the outward mark means absolutely nothing. And in their case, he was talking about circumcision. Just because they went through a physical process of being circumcised doesn't ma automatically make them good with God. That'd be like somebody wearing a cross on a chain around their neck and saying, well, I'm, I'm a Christian because I wear a cross. No, that's just an outward mark. It's an indication of who you are. It doesn't make you a Christian. That's Paul's argument with the Jews. Just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't qualify you as a spiritual descendant. So when you come into chapter 3, Paul asks a very serious question. And maybe you aren't reading it that way when you first glance at it, but I, I want you to see it as a really serious question. Chapter 3 and verse 1 starts out this way. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Now from what Paul wrote in chapter 2, it seems like the answer is going to be <laughs> no benefit whatsoever. I mean, who would want to be? He's already dismantled that argument. But that answer would challenge the integrity of God because God chose these people. And he made promises to them. Here's why it's a really serious question. Because to a person who's a casual reader of the Bible, maybe you've got somebody in your life who occasionally reads it, not really understanding it, 
And maybe they're a casual reader or they consider the saga of Israel's history, the Jewish people. They're not inclined to think there's any advantage to being God's own, to being chosen. Matter of fact, the recoil could be like this. Did God lose control? I mean, what's going on here? He says they belong to him, but the record shows otherwise. These are people who seem anything but chosen. Just think with me through the history of the Jewish people. Think of the slavery. Think of the persecution, the war, the dispersion, near extermination. Just go with me very quickly through this list. 400 years as slaves in Egypt. 40 years wandering in the wilderness. When they finally make it to the promised land that God said would be theirs, they have to fight and claw for every square foot of land. Not long after they arrive in the promised land, they have a few peaceful years under King Saul and under King David and under King Solomon. But on the heels of that comes the Assyrian army and the the nation splits in half and civil war breaks out and the northern half is carried away into captivity and the southern half is carried away into Babylonian captivity. Seventy years, once again, slaves... And when they finally get released and sent back to Israel, they begin rebuilding the nation only to have Greece sweep in and take over and occupy them. And then Greece is conquered by Rome and Rome sweeps in, literally crucifying tens of thousands of Jews. By the time Jesus has died, 70 A.D. comes along and Caesar has had it with the Jewish people and he brings in the forces of Rome and decimates Jerusalem. The capital city is conquered and they slaughter a million people, leaving bodies laying all over in the streets. Of the 100,000 who did survive, they're sold off into slavery. You go forward in time and you find in 115 AD, Emperor Hadrian destroyed 985 Jewish villages and cities and killing 600,000 Jewish men in one onslaught. Move forward into time into 380 AD and you find Caesar Theodosius I declaring an edict, announcing in legal documents the Jewish people are subhuman. You can treat them as insects. If you want to squash them, that's fine. Jump all the way forward to 1086 AD, and the Crusades are underway. When the Crusaders leave Europe and sweep down into the Holy Lands, trying to take it back from the Ottoman Empire, they slaughter tens of thousands of Jews along the way. 1254, King Louis of France expels all of them from France. 1492, the king of Spain sends them all out of Spain and says Jews are not welcome in Spain. 1496, they're expelled from Portugal. Jump all the way forward to our generation, 1940, and I'm jumping over vast amounts of history. Six million Jews are exterminated in the Holocaust. You look at the fact that God says they're chosen, and you begin to wonder what is going on with these people. If you've ever seen the musical Fiddler on the Roof, you're familiar with Tevye. And Tevye is is the lead character in Fiddler on the Roof, and he's the father of a Jewish family struggling in pre-war Russia. And he has a conversation with God in the midst of the musical, and his conversation goes like this. God, I know, I know we are your chosen people, but once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? (laughs) Right? Because if you understand the saga... And the history, and if you looked at chapter 2, you're not thinking there's any advantage at all. 
But in truth, they're chosen for a specific purpose. And there is an advantage to belonging. But hear this. With high privilege, with the high privilege of belonging to God comes high responsibility. The high responsibility is to respond to the knowledge that you have. So you have to hold those two things in balance. Yep, I belong to God. I am a child of God. He's delivered me. He has chosen me. But I've got high responsibility because I belong to Him. You get a glimpse of the contrast when you look at the book of Amos. It's, a, it's an Old Testament book. It's God speaking to the children of Israel. Look at me with me at Amos 3.2. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. How amazing of a claim is that? You only of all the families have I chosen, and chosen for a specific purpose. But look at the second half of Amos 3, 2. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you. See, you've got to hold the two in balance. High responsibility with high privilege. The Jews had missed out on understanding what their high responsibility was. So Jesus comes along and he gives a parable. He tells a story about a king of a nation, a king who sends out wedding invitations to all the select individuals in his empire, inviting them to come to the wedding feast of his son. He's going to throw a massive banquet for his son to honor him for the wedding that's coming up. So the king sends the invitations out, and people ignore the invitations. They crumple them up and throw them away. They even kill some of the messengers, saying, we don't even want to go to this banquet. The king is infuriated, so he sends his soldiers back out to destroy those who had murdered his messengers and burn down their cities. And then the king sends new invitations back out again, inviting the masses of the empire, inviting all the crowd. That parable pictures Israel as the first privileged guest who were invited to celebrate the coming of God's Son but rejected it. And the church is pictured as those who received it the second time, coming to the wedding feast and celebrating. Paul has in chapter 2 dismantled the argument that we can achieve righteousness with God by the things we do. We have an automatic claim to our birthright because we're Jewish. So he answers the question, what advantage is there to being a Jew in verse 2 by saying, huge advantage. Go with me to verse 2. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. If you've been at New Hope for any length of time, you've probably heard me use the word great in association with the word megas, right? It's a big word in the Greek language. With this time great is used here, it's not the word megas. It doesn't mean massive. In this case, it's the word pulos, and it means numerous, many, abundant. I think it's in your notes this morning if you're looking at that. Paul's argument is it's great advantage. There's many advantages to be Jewish is to be blessed and to be delivered as no other nation on earth. Here's just an aside for you. If you're not familiar with what God said about the Jewish people, even though it looks like they were exterminated at one period of time, God said in the Old Testament, they will be the one unique nation who will disappear and will come roaring back again. There's a prophecy in Scripture that relates very directly to them springing back again to coming back on planet Earth. So Paul's saying there's great benefit 
Yet even though there's many benefits, he's going to satisfy himself with one specific benefit. He says the greatest one. The greatest one is that they've got the oracles of God. Uh, when you see the word oracles, and you'll see this word up on the screen, it's this word logion. And when we think of logion, perhaps in your mind you hear the word logos. Logos is the word word. So if, if I say John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, that's John 1.1. 1, 1. You could say it this way, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. The word logos is the base for this word logion. Why is that so important? Because logion means something that's supernatural. It's an utterance from God. And Paul's saying, these people, they've got the word of God. The living word is what Stephen called it, Acts 7.38. When God gave his word, it's this living word that was passed on to us. Why is he being so specific about that? Because there were other oracles in the first century, other voices speaking. In the pagan Roman Empire and among the Greek people, they went to what they called the oracles for advice, for prophecy, for things about future events, and they were always deceptive, and they were based in witchcraft and in sorcery. These oracles are of God. They have no deception in them. What do they declare? You're holding it in your hands this morning, church. Wake up if you're sleeping. I want you to hear this. Hear this. You hold in your hands the Word of God, the living oracles. Are you tracking with me? Paul says within your hands, within your grasp, are the very things that God has declared about the perfections of who He is, the reality that He prearranged your restoration. God has revealed in the things that you hold in your hands the eternal destiny of everyone who embraces His mercy. And He reveals the eternal destiny of everyone who rejects it. There is nothing else like it on planet Earth, church. You hold the greatest gift mankind has ever been given. What an amazing advantage to the lowliest Christian. What an amazing advantage to the lowliest Christian in contrast to the most brilliant mind of a non-believer. Paul says they were first entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, when you say first entrusted, you think, well, there's a list coming. He must be coming up on a list here. Now, he doesn't get back to the list till chapter 9. Let me show you chapter 9 on the screen, chapter 9, 4. The Israelites to whom belong the adoptions and the sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving all. That's the remainder of the list. So check this. The highest honor was that they became the guardians of all that God revealed. And this has direct application to you this morning. Chief among all the revelations that God gave was this promise that through their lineage, the Messiah would come. The one who would bring redemption to the world. Of all the nations, God chose them to be the custodians of his plan for humanity. Here's where your application comes in. Here's where it's going to fit into your life. We understand because of what Jesus said, God the Son standing on planet earth, Matthew chapter 28, go therefore, get out into all the nations and tell them the things that I declared to you. 
God telling his people what to do with his living word, what to do with the oracles of God. To be entrusted with the divine oracles means something more than just coming to church and sitting on a Sunday morning and opening up your Bible because the pastor says and putting it on your lap. You've been entrusted with the living oracles. That means faith. That means obedience to all the things you've been entrusted with. That explains why Jesus came down so heavy on people who were following him around trying to figure out, who is this guy? What's he talking about? Look with me at John 5 on the screen. Jesus is speaking to a really large group of people, and they've got the oracles of God, and he says, you search them. You're searching the oracles. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It's these that point to me. They bear witness of who I am. And Paul switches over to verse 3 because he's got this imaginary objector thing going on in his mind of people who are challenging his points. Go with me to verse 3. What then if some did not believe? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? He's posing a rhetorical question here. What if, in this case, Jews, what if some Jews do not respond in faith? Ask yourself this question. Does the non-response invalidate the promises of God? Answer it out loud if, if you believe this. Can God be invalidated? Okay, so here, here's, here's Paul's argument for them. How is it possible for this people group to whom God made all these promises, how is it possible for a Jew not to be secure? Paul's about to give a really explicit response from the Old Testament itself. He's going to lean back into the Old Testament to bring an answer, and I need to explain it to you because we're only doing verse 4. That's the next verse, and that's all the further we're going to go. So he's going to make an argument here to help them understand why they can understand that God is faithful. God never promised to any individual, no matter how pure his heritage is, no matter how godly his parents are, no matter how much he was dragged to church, God never promised to any individual that they can claim security for eternity apart from a personal relationship with God. Isaiah 55 is a really good example of that. I want you to look with me on the screen and, and put it in the context of who Isaiah is writing to. He's a prophet. He's a Jew writing to other Jews who think that they're secure. Look at Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Well, why say that to people who already think that they're found? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Why would God ever move Isaiah to write that if it were not needed? See, the great majority of God's promises that he made, they were conditional. They were conditional on personal obedience. That applied to the Jewish people. The very few unconditional promises he made, to, they were made to the nation as a whole, not to an individual. So if I've lost you, if I've caused your eyes to glaze over up to this point, hear this. No matter how people personally respond, God is faithful to keep his word. No matter how people respond, God is faithful. Your entire plan of redemption to one day go into eternity with God is predicated upon the fact that God is faithful. God says he forgives my sins. I want to believe that he's faithful and just to forgive my sins, right? 
God says, I'm destined for eternity. I want to believe that I'm really destined for eternity. God says he's coming back one day. I need to know that that God who says he's faithful is actually going to do what he says he's going to do. And here's why this is important, especially if you know people who are casual readers of the Bible. God says that one day he's going to redeem Israel and that all of Israel will fall on its knees and proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior. Maybe you didn't even know that was a prophecy. But because of Israel's rejection of Jesus, God had to hit the pause button. He had to suspend the fulfillment of his promise to redeem Israel. But he has not and he cannot cut that promise because he does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing nullifies God's promises. So let me, let me show you the prophecy one day that he will bring Israel to repentance. Look with me on the screen. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. That was written even before there was crucifixion, even before they knew that Jesus was going to hang on a cross. And it cannot possibly apply to the church because you and I are not the house of David. But it's not happened yet in Israel. So here's where you've got to check yourself on whether or not you believe the Bible. You have to ask yourself, do I believe this? Because I haven't seen this happen yet. So either the Bible is false or it has not yet been fulfilled. Because according to God's word, the national salvation of Israel is predestined. God has said there will be revival in that nation one day. You want to pray for the return of Jesus? Start praying for the salvation of Israel. Start praying for God's spirit to be poured out upon them. Now hear this. That certainty that God is going to do that gives no individual Jew a guarantee of automatically being saved. He's talking about on a national level. So Paul's got this argument about God's faithfulness as he comes into verse 4. This is where we're going to end today. His response is loud. Look at it in verse 4. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Don't get hung up on those last four words. I put a bracket there at the end of the verse on the screen. In your judging is the way it's actually written. When you judge God, you will prevail in truth. This phrase, may it never be, I can't even say it as strong as he's writing it. It is the strongest possible Greek negative phrase that's available in their language. One of the uh, theologians I like to read, Dr. Murray, he calls it this uh, recoil of abhorrence. It's like anathema, impossible. That's, that's the undertone behind this. If every human who ever lived declared God a fraud, God would still be found true. Meaning this, even if the whole world were atheist, maybe there's somebody here that considers himself not a believer yet. Even if the whole world thought like you, even if the whole world were atheist, even then not one dot of God's word could possibly fail. It's not possible. So Paul reaches back. He really expects a lot of his audience. He expects them to know where he's pulling these verses out of. He pulls out a quote from Psalms 51. And some of you are familiar with David, so you know exactly where this is going. Look with me at this quote. This is the quote that David 
um, made that Paul brought into that verse 4. This is what he said in chapter 51, verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. You know what's going on there? Paul has just committed adultery. I'm, I'm sorry, David has just committed adultery. And he's murdered a man. And his cry out to God is, I've sinned, and I've sinned against you, and you are right to judge me, even though I'm the king of the Jews. No king was more beloved than David. He was the Jew of Jews, the king of the Jews. So Paul's smart in bringing this out here into this argument saying that even, even King David could fail and recognize he's going to be judged because 